I'm Kimberly C. Palm. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. I'm here with Martha Callahan, Dr. Martha Callahan. Um, I just finished reading your book. Um, what a fabulous story. But before we go into that, I thought I would allow us to talk a little bit about your experience with your husband, why we're here, uh, and why we're talking about uh, your husband, which eventually became a really cool story about how a physician became a caregiver. and. And through your book, because I just recently read it, it really opened your eyes to end of life. But let's first start with your story about your husband. Tell me his name. And let's let's talk about why we're here talking to one another today, because your husband had a diagnosis and it started with this journey with you and him. So let's go back. Tell us about what occurred um, with your husband's diagnosis and and walk us through that. So Charles really had two issues. Um, Interestingly, he had colon cancer, which didn't really play into his final illness, which is kind of ironic. But he had very significant cardiovascular disease. And in the last year of his life, which is really what I chronicle in this book, um, he had six ICU admissions um, with complications from that. And ultimately, um, as the situation became increasingly uh, more clear that there were not great long-term options, Um, he reached the place where he decided he wanted to stop further treatment and just be at home. Um, Watching that, participating in that, being his wife, being a trained physician, really uh, shone the light on that process of deciding when, when other options need to be presented. Um, I don't think my, my personal bias is, is that as a culture in general, I think we're pretty bad at death and we may talk more about that later. Um, but this process that he and I, and we as a family went through, it it was gradual. When, when we started out, incredible heroic things were done to save his limbs, to save his life for which I was and am extremely grateful. We had a fabulous team of people taking care of him. As the year went on and as the complications piled on, we moved from where it made sense to keep doing more procedures to where it made more sense to Charles and and to us, but most importantly to Charles, to take a different approach and to realize that he'd reached the end. How was that? I mean... 
you see things like this. You must have seen things like this through the eyes of your practice being a physician. Talk to me a little bit. How's it different being that you're still the physician, but being the wife too? Right, right. And uh, yes, I have worked with lots of people in their final illnesses and in their dying process. I was trained as a family physician. So that's part of what, you know, what we do. Um, and I will say, I always thought that that work was particularly um, wonderful work to do. I, I was always drawn towards that sort of end of life care with people. When it was our turn, and it really wasn't us, although it was Charles, I mean, obviously it's different because the the emotions are so different. But I think that what I was able to do was to see with dual vantage points and help facilitate the conversations. And really that that is what I did because his team, like many medical teams, didn't want to go there. Mm. You know, there were always more things that can be offered, things that can be done. Um, and is as often the case, you have a bunch of different people all working on the same case everybody offering a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. And somewhere in the book, I, I think I talked about the fact that, you know, I don't think anyone stopped and thought about, okay, who who's the man who's having all these issues? And, you know, has anyone sat down and talked to Charles about where he is, what it looks like, what the reality is, and talked to him about helping him make some choices. Were you able as a wife and a caregiver, did you and your husband, Charles, have some of those conversations? We had endless conversations and um, yeah, all the way through the process. And then particularly um, once he was home and we made that decision and we were home with hospice care, we talked about his inevitable death over and over and over again. It was just, it was part of the process, but we talked about it all year long. Mm. It was one of the real gifts um, of the whole experience was our ability to talk about it. And, you know, that's, that was one of the enormous gifts that he gave us as a family because we all talked about it. He talked about it with us as a family. And how did that go? I mean, you know, a lot, I, it's really interesting because sometimes I talk to family members and like, well, I'm trying to talk to my daughter about, you know, advanced care planning and my advanced directives and my kids don't want to hear it. And then I hear my, the kids sometimes on the other side saying, look, you know, I work in hospice and palliative care and I'm trying to talk to my parents about advanced directives. They just don't want to hear it. Did you feel like your family was open to meeting your husband where he was at? Because um, we in palliative care and hospice, we I've been in this business 22 years, we are constantly reminding ourselves it's not our death and we have to stop thinking and projecting what we think is best for the patient onto them. And so, you know, I'm sure you being a physician, um, I'm just wondering if if some of that occurred. I, first of all, I agree with you completely. You do have to meet people where they are. And um, maybe it was luck. Charles was there. Charles wanted to talk about it. And that's what I have found so often with 
families, you know, the person, the person in the bed says, oh, don't tell my spouse that, you know, that I'm going to die. I don't want to upset them. And the spouse is standing in the hall saying, don't tell my spouse that die because I don't want to upset him. And you just, you're wasting so much valuable time. Um, maybe I pushed the issue. Maybe Charles was just more open than some other people. Um, we talked about it a lot. And as a family, But your husband wasn't not in the medical field. No, no, he was an architect and an artist. Um, oh, wow. So, so yeah, you, even though you were, he, he was still open about that. And you see that you must see that as a gift. It was a looking. huge gift. Yeah. We had this conversation um, that I talk about in the book. And I remember my, my sister saying, you know, well, what are you going to serve for breakfast for the death breakfast? <laughs> because he made it very clear, everybody was home. It was near Christmas time. And he made it very clear that he wanted like a family meeting the following morning. Um, and we all sat in the living room. So it was Charles. It was me. It was our son. It was his two older sons, my stepsons, and one of the, the granddaughters. Um, and we sat there as a family and he just said, we all know I'm, I'm going to die. We just don't know how soon. I hope it's not soon, but this is what's important to me. And this is what I want. And I don't want dialysis. I don't want this. I don't want that. You know, if he, and, and some levity in there, like, I don't think anybody would want my organs after all this and <laughs> you know what I want done and what I don't want done. And our son at that point looked at him and said, well, you know, dad, we could just have you taxidermied and you could just stay in that chair. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a gift, right? The whole family talking, laughing, crying, talking about this man's inevitable death. He still lived another four months, but oh wow, that was the, that was the platform that was set. And even as a blended family, which certainly, you know, historically can have its challenges, we never had to have another conversation amongst ourselves about what we would or wouldn't do as Charles was actually dying because he had been crystal clear. And do you feel like hearing that from the actual person who is going through this process, it, it must have been so important because if anyone ever wanted to stop, you still heard his voice of what he wanted. I think that's really important. Don't you? Absolutely. I do. And I think for Charles, I think it was tremendously empowering because he was very clear that he was going to make the decisions when he wanted to make the decisions. You've been in this work. It's, it's the, the opportunity to live your death, which is, you know, what I called the book, but that, I mean, that's, that's a, beautiful, magnificent, sad, heroic, poignant, beautiful space. And I, it breaks my heart when, when, um, when people miss that because they're too afraid to have the conversation. And you, you know, you, we've talked a little bit about your book and what I loved about your book, it's called a death lived. And I want to ask you why that title? Because I love it, because I've seen many deaths that are lived, because it makes sense being in this field, but a lot of people who haven't had the exposure to death and dying like the both of us, I'm sure they question like, a death lived, what is that? And how did you come up with that title? 
I, I don't remember how I came up with it specifically, but it is the message of the fact that Charles did and other people can live their death, live that experience. He lived it fully. Um, we had an incredibly rich couple of months in that final hospice phase of, of his dying process. But he was present to it. He was present with it. We, we all were. It was beautiful. In so many ways, it was a beautiful experience. Do you feel yeah. that your husband leaning into it and accepting was a, his way of, of bringing you guys along that journey as well? Because um, I've seen many patients um, throughout my years not lean into it you know, and contemplate like treatment and, and, and you see what is happening on the outside is prolonging of suffering versus, you know, what they feel is going to prolong their life. Did, did it help for your husband to accept what was going on and lean into it? And how did that affect you? I, I think it did help him. Um, we worked with a, a close friend who was the hospice doctor who many conversations just talking with Charles, talking with us about where he saw that we were on the, on the continuum, never saying, you know, Oh, well, I think you have X amount of weeks or months or whatever, but these are the kinds of things that you might expect. These are the kinds of issues that might come up. Here are some of the possible solutions no pressure. You don't have to make any decisions, just a lot of talking, a gentleness. And a. Um, he had a tremendous gift of creating the space for us to have those conversations and to have those even internal dialogues. That's talent. It, and, and to make individuals feel comfortable that it's okay to ask questions and permission to say things. Um, you know, it's, it's a very vulnerable time. And I think that's why so many of, of the hospice and palliative care patients, they've taught me more about living than about my own death. Um, but the interesting thing is that, you know, you and I are not alone in some of our wonderful experiences around end of life. Um, but not many choose to write a book about it. Why? Why was it important for you to share your story? Well, two reasons, because I think Charles did such a magnificent job. It just felt to me all, I mean, it, it, I, I never doubted the fact that it, it really needed to be shared. It was such a gift. But the other thing is, is I, I feel passionate about the fact that I want to help people realize the value of having these conversations. You know, I'd like it to be part of people's sort of, I don't know, annual check-in with, you know, you talk, we all, and we do the, we do the financial and legal stuff. I think it's, it's less scary. People have a will. They talk to the financial guy. They, it's almost like business. You know, they make, That's well, business. It's like, business. yeah. Right. Don't talk to me no, about my no heart. <laughs> right. But don't, don't, you know, talk about what I might want. Um, and if there's anything that I am able to do to help open up this conversation about end of life and dying, 
I, I do a lot of work in mindfulness. Mm. And um, what I am seeing is that I think we ought to expand the conversation of about mindfulness to include mindful dying. I love that. Yeah. I love that. You know, this is... I think there's a lot of challenges. Um, A, we human beings feel we're destination thinkers, so we don't think, we can't destinate our way out of our thinking about our mortality. But also, you know, and we have a lot of work to do in, in getting just human beings able to live in the moment as well as plan for that moment. But you are a physician. You know, these there's a lot of physicians that are beginning to have really open dialogue and, and inspire their patients to think about things, the what-if scenarios. But then there are so many that run from it. You know, how, how can we help our fellow clinicians, you know, even empower them to do their advanced directives? Because uh, we're so bad at it in in the healthcare field, only thirty percent have even begun the conversation. But we see it and preach it every day. Yeah. What are some of your thoughts about that? You know, it's such a um, such an oxymoron, isn't it? I mean, and and part of it is our training, right? We're we're trained to do stuff and save people, and and you know we're we're good at that, but it's not always appropriate. Um, and and it's so hard to get it out of the sort of value judgment piece of, of the equation. And I think the first thing is just that, and I don't know actually what kind of training they're doing in medical education these days. I know we had zero of it, but that was a while ago. So I hope it's better. Um, but I had one of Charles's physicians actually tell me later that he was never able to see a patient death as anything but his personal failure. And that broke my heart for him. I mean, what a burden. And forgive me, it's a little arrogant. I mean, <laughs> right? Newsflash, we're each going to die. Right. It's the only thing that is certain from the moment we're born. So I just wish that we could. It's naive to think people won't be afraid. That's a different piece of the equation. But acknowledge it, admit it. Let's let's talk about it. And and some of that is, I think, we in the medical field are not very good at describing what the different things that we do and offer look like. You know, you start to hear a little bit more now about well, what does it mean when somebody's coded or resuscitated? It's pretty gruesome, particularly if you're old and frail. And and we have to remember that these are totally different conversations in different situations, right? Exactly. Somebody young, you know, and, and so one size does not fit all. But the vast majority of the time we're talking about older people, um, most often with one or several diagnoses. And at some point, you just got to stop playing the game of it's all going to get better. And just shift into, okay, if this doesn't get better, how, what, what's important to you? What, what are your values? And for some people, maybe it's do absolutely everything that, that's available, and that's fine. It's, it's just a question of talking it through. What, what does it mean? What, you know, we were 
Charles and I had lots of graphic discussions and, and probably because we were together all the way through my medical training, he was very well-versed in some of those things, but he didn't, it wasn't ever an issue, but he certainly didn't want to consider things like feeding tubes and being coded and being intubated. And, and that said, he had a couple of things along the way, not in the final illness, but surgeries and stuff. And, and he, you know, he was intubated for a couple of days and there are different situations warrant different discussions. I, I totally, I totally agree with you. Uh, and, 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 you know, you mentioned this word fear. Um, I think fear gets a bad rap. You know, it's okay to be afraid and allow fear to be in the room as long as it doesn't paralyze you. Like even on great adventures, people have fear and it's, it's this innate ability to know what's going on. And it's, it, it, fear is a good thing. It is. Yeah. yeah right. Um, but you know, I'm being afraid of the inevitable, like me, us sitting here today, we will die. Yes. One day. And the only thing I feel if I'm not tragically killed by these crazy drivers in Denver, um, or, uh, you know, doing adventurous things, I, the only thing I do feel like I might have control of is how and where, when is this, is this someone else makes that decision? Um, if you're spiritual or, you know, feel like a disease process, but it's how and where, um, and I, I think that so many people want to grasp and control an illness. And sometimes, no matter what we do, we're unable to do that. Exactly. And, right. right. Um, and and I, I feel very strongly that even us in this, in working with dying patients or pe- let's just say pe- patients with serious illnesses, I mean, we fear that their death is that failure, like you mentioned before. Um, but I also, I think I'm a seeker of the truth, that I want the patient and I want to to get clinicians, no matter what their title is in this world, to say, look, we, here are the options, but here are the most likely outcomes of those options. Because no matter what you do, if you're facing a serious illness and you're dying, those options will either quicken that because you're looking for curative and we don't have the courage or the bravery to say curative is not, we can hope for that. Miracles happen every day and I'm, I'm the kind of person that I've seen them and I get it. But we, when people are very nervous around, I don't want my husband to die. I don't, we lean into that and we come up with, I believe, false hope. Let's do this. Let's do that. Knowing that this or that will not change the outcome. How do we in our field get better at having these conversations, truthful conversations with our patients? Yeah. And and you're right, I think. And, and that knowing that those options are not going to change the outcome that that feels at its worst disingenuous right that that those things are still being offered 
um, without the parenthetical, hey, you know, this is a possibility, but never seen it work or, you know, one in the right. Or, but I really think it comes down to, and, and I think you can be truthful without removing hope. Okay. And I think implicit in our training was this sense that at all costs, don't remove hope because that's what people need. And, and I, I firmly believe you, you can do both. I do too. That's maybe the crux of where it can start to still be hopeful and still, you know, explain both, hold out both. And it's also, you know, it's a quality of life, right? I mean, think of people who make the decisions to stop, let's say chemotherapy, because they just don't want any more of all those side effects and would prefer to maybe shorten the number of days or weeks they have in preference for being less sick or the quality of life. You know, and there, I remember a Duke University medical study that those who've chosen not to take aggressive treatments in the last months of life live longer, more quality. You know, in, and I, I recently I was in front of an individual facing end of life and I printed off that research study for him because he was like, I really want palliative care. And I, I sat down with him and his partner and I said, you know, palliative care, community palliative care is a consult, a consult service. They, you, they, what is, what are we focusing on? And we're going to achieve it. But the Mac daddy Mercedes Benz palliative care is going to give you in-home services and chaplains and social workers. It just happens to be called hospice. And a lot of people don't realize that hospice is absolutely 100% palliative care. Yep. But not all palliative care is hospice. Right. And I think we, we throw out these big terms like the H word and the P word. And, you know, I, I've, I've been in, in a lot of medical schools and I use this term, terminology called med speak. Even us in hospice, we tend to criteria, eligibility. People don't know these words. We're talking a whole nother language. And how do we get better with, with not dumbing down, but talking human being to people when, when medical decisions or, or even medical options are limited? How, how do we become better at that? Taking off the white coat and just talking to our patients as human beings. You know, I think some of it may be, well, certainly talking to our patients as, as human beings. I mean, that's a that's a critical skill that ought to be part of the entire continuum of care, right? Unfortunately, maybe it's not always. But I do think in terms of the med speak, you know, if I had my, if I could just poof, make something happen, it would be that people would be having educational sessions or learning about all these different options. People are so afraid of that word hospice. You know, oh, does that mean I'm dying? Well, it's not as if you just became someone who's dying, right? I mean, that's right. a process. Um, but I think if people understood that there's this whole continuum of things that 
can be addressed and again, kind of make it part of the annual check your documents, you know, and, and what's the difference between a living will or a caregiver and, you know, have you really talked to your decision maker person? I mean, that's maybe that's the place to start is to just long before issues arise, encourage people to identify a decision maker and to really have the conversation with that person. Again, it, it, the, it, everything changes when, when there's a diagnosis, but we've all seen somebody, you know, there's a piece of paper and someone's told, Hey, you're this person's decision maker. They have no idea. No idea what they want. No idea. And, and it really does create a whole other set of burdens on that individual. But when you, like you, like you said, your husband, Charles, this is what I want. This is my desires. Suddenly the decision wasn't yours anymore. No, that's why I say it was the greatest gift that he could have given us as a family. Nobody had to make a decision. It was perfectly clear what, what we were going to do. And that healthcare proxy, that agents, when you sign up to be that voice, only when the patient cannot speak for themselves, by the way, you know, we forget that we're not speaking for the patient. We're speaking as the patient. So we we forget that. And I and I think that's very important that that forces when you're speaking as the patient, you must represent their thoughts and decisions, and beliefs, and all of that wrapped up. And I believe that sometimes when that conversation does not happen, you're just, it's just a piece of paper. Let me just put it out there blunt. It's just a piece of paper that is worthless. And you can, you're going to be sitting up in ICU and still having these burdens of what would they want, and I have no idea. And that I have seen destroy families. I have seen it destroy human beings. Did I do the right thing? Always question, did I do the right thing? And that's where I'm asking people who are um, in a diagnosis or in doing advanced care planning, it is so important. If you don't have those conversations, it's just a piece of paper. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, there's so much opportunity lost, as, as we said earlier. So much opportunity to be in the now, in the present. Like you said, mindful. Like, yes. And I I just recently um, was with a family and I just told them, this sucks. It really does suck. Because we can hope that she can get into the wheelchair and go for a walk with you. And that's a good hope. But most likely that's not going to happen. But let's hope for that. We can hope for it. And and it it really choked the husband up, 63 years of marriage. And and I told him, you have every right to be sad. Yeah. You're letting go of someone that you have known more than half your life. Yeah. And it sucks. But I cannot not speak the truth in a kind and a very not direct way, but direct way in a, in a sense, because he's the first, I'm usually it's hospice and palliative care people that come in saying, Hey, at the hospital, your doctor would like me to talk to you about hospice and palliative care. And they're like, what? 
and it's it gets shoved on to these individuals who are really good at conversations, but it becomes a shock factor then of, oh my God, no one told me. That's just not fair. I mean, it's just not fair to anybody in the room. And it's hard to have those conversations, but I'm quite convinced that we could figure out a way to train our colleagues to do that. And it's just part of, of the work, right? You can't weasel out of that and put it on the social worker. <laughs> so talk to me as a family practitioner, which I think you, your internalist um, family practice, I believe that you guys can play a very, very val- valuable and even like turning the whole situation around because you do see these patients for long term. Right. You know these patients. And hospices are arrogant too. They cannot walk in and be like, oh, you know, our medical director is going to take over. We have got to include these family practitioners who have known these patients far longer and collaborate not only with the clinicians, but also with the patient and family all together. So where, where do you see, I mean, how can we expand the knowledge of of hospice and palliative care and include these uh, family practitioners because you guys are seeing a lot. And when I was on tour um, in my RV and I would get lonely, I would go to like a family practitioner and sit outside their office and the bags of medicine in grocery bags that they would walk into because you know that physician's like, bring all your medications. I want to see them. I mean, I was just like, what are we doing? Um, so what is, how do you feel that a palliative care and hospices need to be more inclusive with family practitioners at the clinics in the office? How can we work better together in your opinion? I mean, I think that's crucial. And and I know at least in our, um, hospital system here, the resistance is huge. You know, it just is Hospice is called in, I don't remember the statistics, but is it 72 hours is the average length of stay? I mean, what a waste of everybody's time and energy. You can't really be helpful to the patient in that period of time because you hardly know them. Um, it's just a lot of paperwork, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just a, a, a total waste of the system and, and time, energy, all of it. It's got to be brought in or offered so much earlier. And people just don't know about, people in the community don't realize what palliative care means. um, And they're afraid of hospice. Doctors, I think, have tremendous resistance to calling in palliative care or hospice. And is that because they're not willing to deal with the truth? Is it because they want to maintain that relationship with the patient right up to the end? Is it because they think they are offering what's palliative care, right? It's relief of symptoms and we all are trained to relieve symptoms. So to some degree, we all think we're all doing palliative care, which we're not in terms of end of life care. So again, I don't know what is being taught in medical education right now, but I still think the best approach is to community outreach, keep talking to people, that will change the system. 
because people will they're going to drive it. it. Yeah. They're going to drive it just like the, the birthing movement. And you know, there's, I, there's a lot of medical school schools out there teaching their med students about end of life and um, conversations, difficult conversations, but we have to forget where are those students going? They're going into and working with people who've been in this field 30 years. And I just can only imagine when you're a new med student, you're more, you're most likely going to cave. And be like, okay, let me do it his he his or her way because they've been doing this for years. Exactly. And and so there it's it's a paradox for sure. Um But I think the um, you know, the the community activism, if you will, that brought the birthing movement. I mean, I love the the developing the emergence of the death doula. Me too. So that's gonna help, right? I I hope so. You know, we just have to normalize the process or the fact of, not even the process, but the fact of death so that we can be talking about it. And you know, when I, I don't do straight family medicine anymore. I do an integrative functional medicine, but I often talk with my patients about end of life. And I see people with some bad diagnoses who are looking for another approach and always have the conversation with them. And, you know, every once in a while, somebody doesn't want to have the conversation, but more often than not, I find that's like, oh, finally, somebody permission. is open space. Yeah. And permission. Well, you know, let's talk about your practice. Cause I saw your website, Five Stones, and yeah. it's, it's an interesting approach that I don't see in a lot of places, which I feel is at the community's detriment as well as the practitioner. Um, Talk to me a little bit about Five Stones. So, as I said, I did conventional family medicine for 20-some-odd years and then had some opportunities to see things another way, is the way I like to to say it. But So it's it's really an integrative medicine approach based on functional medicine, which really is a lot of terms just to... We really focus on looking at root cause and what we can do in terms of modifiable, mostly lifestyle factors that can contribute to changing a a situation. Um, Much less intense pharmaceutical medicine, a lot more integrative therapies, a lot of focus on nutrition, nutritional supplements, botanicals, herbs. Um, We have a nutritionist, a coach. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's pretty wonderful. It's amazing because, you know, I've seen a cartoon in the last few months that you have like a hundred people in the line to pop a pill. And then the other sign on the other window is change your lifestyle. And no one's in that. You know, it's because diet, 80%, I I think this is correct. If 80% of your health is what you eat and then put in your body. I suspect that's true. I haven't heard that particular statistic, but I'm I'm sure it's true. I mean, it's amazing. So, you know, what is what's what's your next project? I mean, you have this book out about your experience. Has it changed and in fact impacted the way you practice as a physician going through this walk with your husband Charles? Yes, in that I I am much more willing to and in fact make sure I do have hard conversations with people. You know, just they don't they don't scare me anymore. You know, I've done it. Is it because of an, your experience, though? And you're you're coming from a personal experience that you can share with your patients. Yeah, I do. 
Right. And I think I think people are desperate. And it goes back to your entire book. It was a story mm-hmm. about. It's really a love story. But, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a beautiful love story that in the end impacted everyone involved. And actually, after reading it, impacted it and made their lives better. Thank you. In in yeah. my opinion, because it it was so beautifully written about the story and how you're it just gave you a whole different perspective. And the thing is you were open to that perspective. Not many people are. Not many people are. And I hope to change that. I mean it's it's I laugh and tell people that I um so my when you write a book, you pick a launch, you know, maybe six months out or whatever. My book launched March 16th, 2020, which is the day the country shut down <laughs> for the pandemic. Oh. Like, oh, good. That was, that was really. Yuppie. So I'm relaunching it virtually next month or no, yeah, November um, on a, on a virtual platform. Um, but I, what I, you asked what's next, what I really want to have happen is um, to help people have, have the conversations. I'll be doing some workshops and hopefully, excuse me, hopefully some speaking engagements. And, you know, I just want to help get the word out about the fact there's a different way to do this. Well, how can people get in touch with you to book you as a speaker? Or, I mean, how can they get in touch with you? Um, So the website would be great. My practice um, phone number, 703-669-6118. But yeah, the the website would be the best way to do that. Now, is that the Five Stone website or Mm -hmm. do you have another? Oh, so go right to Five Stones um, and and your book is available on the website as well. It is. And I... It's all under one, right. And I do think you provide something unique as talking and working for so many decades in the in the clinical world as a physician, you could have a major impact um, because of your experience. And so anyone who's interested, first of all, you've got to read the book, A Death Lived. It's an amazing love story. Thank you. But all, yeah. But also, get in touch and and allow, Absolutely. yeah. Get get this wonderful person yeah. as a speaker, and it's going to impact your community. We've and I think you, I think you really bring a a good point is that we have got to give the community permission to get into the driver's seat because they're going to drive their own care. And it goes right back to right. It is there, there, and each of our deaths to live. It is. Absolutely. Well, I want to offer, if there's anything that I can do, shoot me uh, your virtual book launch. I will promote it on all my, all my channels. I, I, I do feel very um, passionate when it comes to working with family practitioners, especially when you're looking at uh, the unique, unique, integrative, what you've created right there um, in Leesburg. Virginia? Correct. Yep. Um, you know, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, so I'm an East Coaster and I love Virginia. Oh, yeah. Um, it's not far from Richmond. So. Exactly. But I thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for being willing to have an impact on communities as well as the healthcare system in a whole. I mean, we're not going to change the entire thing, but we can change one patient at a time. 
And I think absolutely, I think that should be our approach. But I, I just have so much respect for you um, and your journey with your husband, as well as how you're allowing that to affect how you practice and have these hard conversations. It's going to take you and and many other people to give community members permission to again get into that driver's seat and drive the their decisions about their own lives. So thank you. And take all of us. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. You're an amazing person. I look forward. You know, I might be in Washington um, in a couple of months. Well, let me know. I will love to to get together and maybe have dinner with you. It'd be fun. Yeah. I just the I feel like I can learn so much from your experience, and um, thank you for sharing that for with with us with the book with the podcast audience. Um, again, visit the Five Stones website get in touch. Um, It's called A Death Lived by Martha Callahan. And she has been practicing family medicine for 20 some years. And so it's a unique perspective. So uh, Martha, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. This podcast is produced by Jason Andre with Seven Season Films. If you're interested in telling your story via podcast, look him up. You can find him at sevenseasonfilms.com.